Chapter 3, Reading the Records of Zion, Abraham and the Patriarchal Records in Haran. Seek not for riches, but for wisdom, and behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you. And then shall you be made rich. Behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 6, verse 7. Precious Patriarchal Records I have found it written in the books of my forefathers. These words from Jubilees, spoken by the dying Abraham to his beloved Isaac, point to the f profound effect of the patriarchal records on the life of Abraham, who first read them in Haran. What he read in the records made a deep and indelible impression, changing the course of his life and the course of history. They gave him his bearings, guiding and shaping his life and forming his remarkable ministry and providing the blueprint of what he would spend the rest of his life building and seeking and becoming. It would be difficult to overstate the importance of those records for understanding the life of Abraham. Everything I have obtained has been only because I occupied myself with Torah and God's precepts, Abraham is reported to have once said. The book of Abraham gives significant but compressed glimpses of what Abraham read in the records, glimpses that are fortunately applied by other passages of restored scripture like our book of Moses and Doctrine and Covenants 107. In addition, we now have a host of ancient writings dealing with Adam and Enoch and their era, many of which sources purport to have been written by those very patriarchs. And although such sources are, says Nibley, copies of copies, yet we cannot escape the impression that they have a real model behind them. This is especially so when we see numerous convergences between Latter-day Scripture and newly discovered ancient writings which often elaborate on matters more concisely mentioned in Latter-day Scripture. We can thereby form some idea of what Abraham read in those records, providing us with a mental map of what Abraham learned from those records of his fathers. That map is key to understanding Abraham. Abraham attributed his acquisition of the records to divine providence. The Lord my God preserved in mine own hands, while still in Ur, the records of the fathers, even the patriarchs. Jubilees similarly tells of Abraham having the books of the, his fathers or forefathers, including the words of Enoch and Noah. A Muslim source relates that when Abraham opened the chest of Adam, he found books written by Adam, Seth, and Enoch, men who our Book of Moses also mentions as record keepers. An early Christian work called the Book of the Bee further tells that Abraham also received a wooden staff originally owned by Adam, who had cut it from the tree of good and evil. The tradition that these earliest sacred records were kept in a chest raises the tantalizing possibility that what Abraham had may have been essentially an Ark of the Covenant like that to be built centuries later by Moses, for that later Ark would likewise be a wooden chest housing the sacred records, and as the later Ark would serve as God's throne in the portable tabernacle and finally in the temple. So that chest that Abraham had may have served the same function in the temples that tradition credits him with building. Speaking of the sacred records he had by Adam, the book of Moses mentions that some were written by the finger of God. Jewish tradition similarly tells that the original Torah had been written with the finger of consuming fire, apparently the same heavenly book given to Adam and subsequently handed down to Abraham, and perhaps including what George Sincilius reports as the heavenly book given to Seth and handed down through the generations, but it is Enoch, builder of the city of Zion, who stands out in apocryphal literature and our book of Moses as the greatest transmitter of records.
the preeminent and prolific scribe of righteousness, whose writings were quoted so heavily in early Jewish and Christian sources, and now predominate in our modern collection of apocryphal texts. The patriarchal records that Abraham now gazed upon with wonder were what Mesopotamian tradition calls the Tablets of Destiny, the Tablets of Wisdom, the Law of Heaven and Earth, the Tablets of the Gods, the Mystery of Heaven and Earth. They contained supreme wisdom. They were the records of Zion. And they were written in a strange language long since extinct, the original language of the creation. How was Abraham to read them? The book of Abraham mentions a Urim and Thummim in Abraham's possession that God had given him in Ur, where Abraham had also received the records of the fathers. That the Urim and Thummim was found with their records is suggested by the Jewish tradition insisting that Abraham possessed the same precious shining stone that Noah once had. The scenario fits precisely the pattern of which Joseph Smith received not only the ancient sacred records written in a dead language, but also the divinely prepared means to translate them. Such sacred implements, as seen in the case of Joseph Smith, are reserved for those chosen seers who themselves are divine instruments to bring forth God's word to the world. Jubilees further tells that God sent an angel who tutored Abraham in the lost language so that he could decipher the books and who explained to him everything he could not understand. One is again reminded of the experience of Joseph Smith, who, after being visited by Moroni, was divinely tutored in the history of the inhabitants of the ancient Americas. The angel that tutored Abraham was, says Jubilees, the very angel of the presence, a point emphasized by Byzantine chronographers as well. Enoch, the greatest author and compiler of the sacred records that Abraham now held in his hands, had come to teach Abraham all about them. Even with angelic assistance, the process still called for careful concentration on Abraham's part. Speaking of the Torah that Abraham pursued, the Jewish says Nachmanides stated that Abraham occupied himself with its study, and the reason for its commandments and its secrets. One thinks immediately of Nephi, whose soul delighted in the scriptures and whose heart pondered them continually. What Abraham learned about cosmos and creation fallen atonement. The patriarchal records give Abraham his bearings on the universe, teaching him about the cosmos and creation. The book of Abraham tells that the patriarchal records dealt with the planets and the stars as they were made known unto the fathers. While 1st Enoch contains extensive astronomical material, and 2nd Enoch records that God told Enoch all the things of heaven and earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, their courses and their changes. Also in 3rd Enoch, Enoch explains, The Holy One has given to every single star a name. For it is written, He counts the numbers of the stars and gives each of them a name. The book of Abraham further tells that from the patriarchal records he obtained a knowledge of the beginning of the creation. The apocryphal Enoch literature describes that God revealed to Enoch about the pre-mortal existence, the rebellion and expulsion of Satan and the creation. Abraham would have also read what we can read in the book of Moses about God teaching Enoch that thy brethren are the workmanship of mine own hands, and I, give unto, and I gave unto them their knowledge in the day I created them, and in the garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency. Similarly, in Second Enoch, the Lord tells Enoch that I created man and gave him his free will. And I pointed out to him the two ways, light and darkness. And I said unto him, This is good for you, but that is bad. Abraham also would have read about the fall of man, as we can read in Enoch's record of the book of Moses. In his youth, Abraham had correctly deduced the existence of the Creator by observing the majesty of his creations. 
Now, reading the patriarchal records, Abraham discovered that the Creator was also the Redeemer, who in time would leave his glorious heavenly abode to come to earth as a man and minister in power, and to suffer untold agony for the sins of mankind, only to die and rise again in glory. Abraham may well have had a version of what we can now read in the Testament of Adam, about how Adam, while still in the Garden of Eden, learned of the future mission and ministry of the Savior. Abraham would have read what we can read in Restored Scripture about how Adam, after being expelled from the garden, obeyed the Lord's commandments by offering the firstlings of his flock for an offering unto the Lord, without understanding why. And after many days an angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam, saying, Why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? And Adam said unto him, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. And then the angel spake, saying, This thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, which is full of grace and truth. Wherefore, thou shalt do all that thou doest in the name of the Son, and thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. A similar account in the combat of Adam and Eve tells that Adam had made an offering on the altar and had begun to pray, with his hands spread unto God. The voice of the Lord explained what would later happen to the Lord himself when I shall be pierced and blood shall flow. The restored writings of Enoch report what the voice of God further taught Adam. If thou wilt turn unto me and hearken unto my voice, and believe, and repent of all thy transgressions, and be baptized, even in water, in the name of mine only begotten Son, who is full of grace and truth, which is Jesus Christ, the only name which shall be given under heaven, whereby salvation come unto the children of men, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, asking all things in his name, and whatsoever ye shall ask, it shall be given unto you. When Adam inquired why repentance was necessary, the Lord explained, Inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water and blood and the spirit, which I have made, and so became of dust a living soul, even so ye must be born again into the kingdom of heaven, of water and of the spirit, and be cleansed by the blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, that ye might be sanctified from all sin, and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world, and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. For by the water ye keep the commandment, by the spirit ye are justified, and by the blood ye are sanctified. Therefore, it is given to abide in you the record of heaven, the comforter, the peaceable things of immortal glory, the truth of all things, that will quickeneth all things, which maketh alive all things, that which knoweth all things, and hath all power according to wisdom, mercy, justice, truth, and judgment. And now, behold, I say unto you, this is the plan of salvation unto all men, through the blood of mine only begotten, who shall come in the meridian of time. Then Adam prayed, apparently asking for these blessings, and was caught away by the Spirit of the Lord, and was carried down into the water, and was laid under the water, and was brought forth out of the water. And thus he was baptized, and the Spirit of God descended upon him. And thus he was born of the Spirit, and became quickened in the inner man. This may have been the occasion when, as related by Adam in the life of Adam and Eve, when he and Eve were praying, a messenger came of God came to me, and I saw a chariot like the wind, and its wheels were fiery, and I was carried off into the paradise of righteousness. And I saw the Lord sitting, and his appearance was unbearable flaming fire. If this account was part of the record that Abraham read, and he would have reflected on the time when he had also seen a fiery chariot, and would now have understood that it represented transport to the realm of paradise. What Abraham learned about Adam's posterity in Enoch Zion but Adam's mission was to continue on earth, where he was commanded to teach the gospel freely to all his posterity. He did so faithfully, and many believed. 
According to the Chronicle of Sincelius, Adam's son Seth was granted an apocalyptic experience like that of Adam. Seth was temporarily taken up into heaven and received a revelation about the transgression of mankind, the coming cataclysm, the flood, and the advent of the Savior. Further, according to the Chronicle of Dionysus, Seth received a heavenly book of secrets which was passed down from generation to generation. Not all of Adam's posterity hearkened to the truths he taught. In fact, many believed not, but rebelled, being led by Satan into increasing wickedness. Abraham probably read what we can read in Enoch literature, now extant, that the generation of the flood rejected God's commandments and committed adultery and erred, and all their conduct became corrupt. They made molten images and practiced idolatry, worshiping vain gods and delving into occult powers as they practiced sorcery. They were so given to violence and bloodshed that they were delighted in seeing the murder of their beloved ones, even the destruction of their children. Nation rose up against nation and people against people to such an extent that mankind was engulfed in wars and bloodshed, and the whole world was filled with blood and oppression. In short, it was a cruel age of wickedness and warfare when Satan had great dominion among men. Abraham may well have recognized in such descriptions a distant mirror of his own day, but he would have also read what is now available in a restored portion of the Lost Book of Enoch, about the society of the righteous, led first by Adam, and in turn each of the patriarchs, noblemen who were preachers of righteousness and spake and prophesied, and called upon all men everywhere to repent. These were the men who, in the lineage of the firstborn sons, were heirs to and received their ordination to that exclusive order of the patriarchal priesthood given to Adam, and passed on to their righteous firstborn, but exercised only by the senior living patriarch. As when the aged Adam gathered his righteous posterity and gave them his final blessing, the Lord appeared unto them, and they rose up and blessed Adam, and called him Michael, the prince, the archangel. And the Lord administered comfort unto Adam, and said unto him, I have set thee to be at the head, a multitude of nations shall come of thee, and thou art a prince over them for ever. And Adam stood up in the midst of the congregation, and notwithstanding he was bowed down with age, being full of the Holy Ghost, predicted whatsoever should fall, befall his posterity unto the latest generation. That Adam, to gather his posterity to give them his final instruction and blessing, is also recounted in The Conflict of Adam and Eve, which proceeds to tell that the patriarchal authority was passed on from Adam and held successively by each of the antediluvian patriarchs, as each in turn presided over all of Adam's posterity, and cared for and taught and nurtured all who would join the society of the righteous, a happy people who become, who because of their own purity were named children of God, as attested to in the book of Moses. As Abraham also discovered, something remarkable happened with the seventh patriarch, Enoch, who, as related in restored scripture, suffered from a speech impediment so severe that nobody expected he could follow the pattern of his patriarchal forefathers in becoming a powerful preacher of righteousness. But it was God himself who called Enoch to go forth and open his mouth in proclaiming the gospel to mankind. As Enoch did so, his words flowed forth with such eloquence and power that fear came on all them that heard him, and the people trembled and could not stand in his presence. Those who accepted his message joined the people of God, but not without tribulation, for their enemies came to battle against them. Despite apparently overwhelming odds, Enoch courageously led the people of God, and then with unprecedented faith invoked heavenly powers to defeat the earthly powers threatening Zion. As he spake the word of the Lord, and the earth trembled and the mountains fled, even according to his command, the rivers of water were turned out of their course, and the roar of lions was heard out of the wilderness, and all nations feared greatly. 
Under Enoch's continued leadership, the saints of his day built a city of such peace and love that it was called the City of Holiness, even Zion, a community of saints who achieved such unity and righteousness that the Lord came and dwelt with his people. It stood out in the sharpest contrast with the rest of the world, literally a city of light in a dark world, causing all nations to fear because so great was the glory of the Lord which was upon his people. And it was a city so beloved by God that he finally took it up from the world to a higher realm. And lo, Zion in the process of time was taken up into heaven to a terrestrial paradise, or as indicated in Jubilees, the Garden of Eden. If the Garden of Eden could not come to earth, Enoch Zion would go to it and remain there until the last days to return to earth and join another city of Zion that would be built on earth. The people of Enoch city were changed from mortality to a sanctified condition so that they should not die at that time, but should serve as ministering angels until the future day when they will experience a change equivalent to death and then enter into the fullness of God's rest. What Abraham learned about the transformation of Enoch. But Enoch himself received special authority and standing. According to Sirach, Enoch was taken into the divine presence. As Enoch recounts in 3rd Enoch, when the Holy One took me away from the generation of the flood, he lifted me on the wings of the wind of Shekinah. For the word Shekinah we might read fire. For in that same source and elsewhere, the Shekinah is said to have the appearance of brilliant, dazzling fire. In fact, another Jewish text tells that Enoch was carried into the heavens in a fiery chariot. Enoch's fiery transport took him, as he relates in 3rd Enoch, into the great palaces on high where he beheld the glorious throne of God in the midst of the divine beings whose appearance he describes as fiery, flaming, and burning, reminiscent of Joseph Smith's statement that God dwells in everlasting burnings. In the similar account in 1st Enoch, Enoch describes the divine throne, as the prophet Ezekiel later would in, in Ezekiel chapter 1, as a glorious fiery chariot with wheels. Its appearance was like the crystals of ice, and the wheels thereof was like the shining sun. And the glory of the Great One sat thereon, and his raiment was brighter than the sun, and whiter than any snow. And the Lord called me with his own mouth, and said unto me, Come hither, Enoch, and hear my word. Fear not, Enoch, righteous man, and scribe of righteousness. Surrounding the divine throne, according to third Enoch, was a rainbow. In second Enoch, Enoch reports that I saw the face of the Lord, who was surrounded by choirs with their never-ceasing songs and their unchanging beauty. Enoch continues, With his own mouth the Lord called to me, Take courage, Enoch, do not be afraid. Get up and stand in my presence for, or in front of my face, forever. And Michael, the Lord's great archangel, raised me up and led me into the Lord's presence. Then, at God's command, Michael oversaw the anointing of Enoch, and his being clothed in glorious garments. And I looked at myself, says Enoch, and I was like one of the glorious ones, and there was no apparent difference. The Lord called him Beloved Enoch, and as described in Third Enoch in the Mesopotamian tradition, ushered him unto a throne of splendor. Mesopotamian tradition also adds that he was presented with a tablet of the gods and handed a royal scepter of cedar, which is the sign of rulership as well as priestly activities and a symbol of the tree of life. Then continues Enoch in third Enoch, the Holy One made for me a garment of glory, a robe of honor on which he fixed all kinds of beauty, splendor, brilliance, and majesty, or luster of every kind. Probably the royal garment of divine splendor mentioned in rabbinic text, which is described as having a purple hue. Then says Enoch, the Lord made for me a royal crown, whose brilliance shone into the four quarters of heaven and into the four quarters of the world. 
And he put it on my head, and he called me the lesser Yahweh, Jehovah, in the presence of all his heavenly household, as it is written, for my name is in him. And at that point, Enoch saw that his own person was changed so that he had the appearance of fire. Mesopotamian tradition further tells that Enoch is in turn brought several men from the earth into his presence, and he honored them. Apparently a reference to some of Enoch's colleagues who had been translated with him. Furthermore, according to Third Enoch, the Holy One blessed be he, put his hand upon me and blessed me, and appointed me to attend the throne of glory, and placed me there to attend the throne of glory day after day. Similarly, in the book of Moses, Enoch tells the Lord that thou hast given unto me a way to thy throne. And in the same source, Enoch refers to himself as but a lad. So in third Enoch, the angel Metatron, or Enoch, had 70 names, but the king called him Nyar, the youth. According to Joseph Smith, this Enoch God reserved unto himself, to be a ministering angel, to minister to those who would be heirs of salvation. Enoch became the very angel of the presence, or the prince of the presence, or the great prince of the throne of God, the prince on whom the Lord placed his name, and who was appointed as a special representative or vice-regent of the Holy One. Enoch was appointed as ruler over all of the heavenly hosts except several of the highest princes, the chief prince being Michael, who was Adam. Abraham now knew, if he didn't before, the identity of the angel of the presence who had rescued him from the death on the altar in Ur, even the same angel who was now helping Abraham to read and understand the very books formerly written by that angel. Enoch, the renowned builder of ancient Zion, had been sent to help Abraham reestablish Zion. What Abraham learned about Enoch's heavenly vision and earthly heritage. Abraham would further have read how Enoch was granted access to all manner of heavenly mysteries regarding the governance of the cosmos and the progression of the terrestrial history. From his privileged station of being high and lifted up, Enoch saw all the nations of the earth before him and was even taken on a tour of the ends of the earth to the north, west, south, and east. He then saw future history unfold before his eyes as we can now read in the book of Moses and the apocryphal literature. For at least some of the vision, it is Michael who acts as Enoch's guide and tutor. Enoch saw the fate of the wicked ones perishing in the flood, that they would suffer and be shut up in a prison while the heavens wept over them, and Enoch wept himself. These passages apparently had a profound effect on Abraham, who, as would later be said of the sons of King Mosiah, could not bear that any human soul should perish. Enoch also heard Mother Earth mourn and lament the wickedness of her children, against whom she made accusation, and he began to pray for mercy for the earth and for his posterity. The Lord could not withhold, and he covenanted with Enoch, swear unto him with an oath, and sent forth an unalterable decree to preserve and protect his posterity adding, Blessed is he through whose seed Messiah shall come, for he saith, I am Messiah, the king of Zion. Enoch saw the flood, and Noah being saved on the ark, and he saw generation upon generation as he heard the earth groan from Noah down through the future history of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. He also saw the day of the coming of the Son of Man even in the flesh, and his soul rejoiced, saying, The righteous is lifted up, and the Lamb is slain from the foundation of the world. The scene continued to unfold until Enoch beheld the last days and was told that another generation would arise, the last of many, and I will raise up for that generation someone who will reveal to them the books in your handwriting and those of your fathers. The modern-day translator of this passage in Second Enoch comments that the context requires the introduction of an 
authoritative teacher, along with a restitution of the books of Enoch to provide for the needs of the faithful in this end time. It appears, in other words, that Enoch saw the raising up of Joseph Smith, through whose instrumentality God would restore lost writings of Enoch. Enoch further beheld righteousness come down out of heaven, and truth come forth out of the earth to bear testimony of the only begotten. He saw, in other words, the restoration of divine authority and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And then he saw righteousness and truth sweep the earth as with a flood, to gather out the elect from the four quarters of the earth to build Zion, a new Jerusalem, in preparation for the glorious coming of the Lord and his descent with Enoch's city of Zion. As Enoch tells in Third Enoch, the Holy One will reveal his great arm to the nations of the world, and at once Israel shall be saved from among the Gentiles, and the Messiah shall come to them, and bring them up to Jerusalem with great joy. Moreover, the kingdom of Israel, gathered from the four quarters of the earth, shall eat with the Messiah. Through the turbulent time of massive destruction and change, as Enoch wrote, the Lord will preserve the elect, and kindness shall be upon them. Kindness was, in fact, one of the Lord's unchanging qualities, as Abraham read in a passage recording that Enoch told the Lord, Thou art merciful and kind forever. Abraham would also have read the kindness in one of the traits of God's people, the righteous, they who suffer every kind of tribulation in this life, and who carry out righteous judgment, and who have and who give bread to the hungry, and who cover the naked with clothing, and who lift up the fallen, and who help the injured and the orphans. For such, the Lord told Enoch, is prepared a glorious paradise. These passages appear to have been exercised a profound influence on Abraham, for they offer a perfect description of the future course of his life. And surely he could not have failed to recognize the prophecy of his own life when Enoch had foretold that one of his descendants shall be chosen as a plant of righteous judgment, and his posterity shall come forth as a plant of eternal righteousness. Abraham also learned that his future ministry required the authority originally possessed by Enoch, whose firstborn son Methuselah was not taken, that the covenants of the Lord might be fulfilled. Abraham would have read of Noah's ministry, the hardened generation of the flood, and of his clearly inviting them to believe in Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, to be baptized in his name, and to receive the Holy Ghost. Abraham would have further read of God's covenant with Noah following the flood. The sign of the covenant was the rainbow, as we read in Genesis chapter 9. But the covenant encompassed far more than God's promise never again to flood the earth with water. We learn in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis that the covenant to Noah was actually a renewal of the covenant to Enoch, as God told Noah, as the bow shall be in the cloud, I will look upon it, that I re remember the everlasting covenant which I made unto thy father Enoch, that when men should keep all my commandments, God should again come on the earth, the city of Enoch, which I have caught up unto myself. And when the posterity shall embrace the truth and look upward, then shall Zion look downward, and all the heaven shall shake with gladness, and the earth shall tremble with joy. And the general assembly of the church of the firstborn shall come down out of heaven, and possess the earth, and shall have place until the end come. Abraham would have read how the patriarchal authority continued to pass down in orderly succession from Noah to his son Shem and down through the patriarchal line, providing Abraham with, as he tells in the book of Abraham, a chronology running back from myself to the beginning of the creation. In that genealogy, he discovered that he himself was in the chosen patriarchal line with the right to be ordained to the patriarchal priesthood. In his own words, he was a rightful heir holding the right belonging to the fathers, even the right of the firstborn, or the first man, who is Adam. He who exercised the first patriarchal reign, even as it would later be exercised by Noah, it was Abraham's right, in other words, to be ordained to the patriarchal priesthood, to establish and preside over Zion for the benefit of all mankind. 
All he needed was the gospel ordinances and his ordination. The question was, from whom? Generations of his patriarchal forefathers had been unworthy to receive their ordination, having turned to idolatry, but if Abraham was to build Zion, he would need to receive the power and authority to do so.